From Step and Connect, this is the Balance Matters Podcast, a neurophysical therapist journey to make sense of balance. I am Erica DeMarch, your host, a physical therapist deeply passionate about teaching and training balance. After many interesting clinical discussions with colleagues and mentors over the years, I thought, wow, I need to share their expertise with others. On this podcast, I interview leading minds in medicine, health, and wellness to give you up-to-date information on balance, new innovation, and translate the most current research into practical clinical examples that you could start implementing right away. This is the Balance Matters Podcast. I have the pleasure to speak with two amazing therapists, Jamie Wahab and Catherine Dianis. Jamie Wahab is a neurologic and vestibular physical therapist. She is the founder owner of the Balance and Neurologic Center of the Rockies and an affiliate instructor for the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Regis University. She's an affiliate educator at the Reactive Education, an online international continuing education platform teaching advanced vestibular rehab content. She became board certified as a neurologic clinical specialist in 2007 and recertified in 2017. Current clinical interests include evaluation and treatment of patients with complex vestibular disorders, movement disorders, and functional neurologic disorders. She has a special interest in treating visual motion hypersensitivity and functional dry needling in the person with spasticity and dystonia to optimize outcomes and quality of life. She has been an invited panel member for the Brain Injury Hope Foundation. She's been involved in research regarding peripheral neuropathy and Parkinson's disease, as well as dual tasks with Parkinson's disease at Regis University. Catherine Diaz is a neurologic and vestibular physical therapist as well, and she's the owner and founder of Step Up Physical Therapy in Colorado. She achieved her competency in vestibular rehabilitation through Emory University in 2002. She became a board-certified neurologic clinical specialist in 2007 with recertification in 2017. Teaching experience includes assisting in the neurologic and vestibular coursework for the University of Colorado Doctor of Physical Therapy program. She is affiliate educator with the Reactive Education, an online continuing education platform teaching advanced vestibular rehab content. The popular course of positive spin and dizziness reached an international audience. Her clinical research with Regis University investigated peripheral neuropathy and Parkinson's disease. Current clinical interests include the evaluation and treatment of those with complex vestibular disorders with a special interest in visual motion hypersensitivity and those with movement disorders, including Parkinson's disease, dystonia, and functional neurological disorders. She's passionate about improving the function and quality of life with her patients. So I'm very excited to speak with both of them about optical flow and postural control. So I am excited today. Thank you, Jamie and Catherine, for joining us on a conversation about optical flow and visual motion hypersensitivity. We're going to learn a lot more about the visual system and how that um, relates to balance. So recently, Jamie and I went to lunch and had a conversation about balance and optical flow. And after that, it started to say, hey, we should have more of a conversation that we should record um, so Jamie and Catherine have been delving deeper into this recently. So um, welcome both of you guys to the podcast today. Thank you, Thank you for having us, Erica. We're really, um, really excited to be here talking with you. So great. So let's get started just on if you can tell the audience what is optical flow and kind of examples in everyday life that we might um, encounter. Should I? I'll go on this one. Um, this is Jamie speaking. So I optical flow is um, Catherine and I have been really excited about it because the more well, the more we understand it, the more we understand what's going on with visual sensitivity in our patients and um, imbalance. So um, optical flow is the continual change in visual images that helps determine the perception of self-motion in relation to the environment. So 
the example would be um, as we are moving or as we are turning our head, the, the optical flow of movement is going to go in the opposite direction. But but that's really important information. It's telling us alongside the vestibular system that our head is either rotating or that we're moving forward and translating forward. And so we use this, um, we use that visual information to really give us the perception of speed of motion, direction of motion. Um, and when it, it, and it works really well until it doesn't work. And it, 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 becomes difficult in people who tend to be um, very dependent on a very stable visual environment. And when that flow um, is moving, it creates a sensory conflict, um, meaning the vestibular system and the visual system um, are both reading different um different uh, speeds of motion. So we have one speed of motion coming from our visual field and one speed of motion coming from our um, vestibular system. And when they don't match, we don't feel well. We don't feel good. We might even have a loss of balance and feel unsteady. Um, and the the studies we're going to be talking about at the um, during this presentation kind of reflect that postural control and even our inability to maintain fixation when there's optical flow around us. Catherine, is there anything else you want to add to that? I I would just add that we get optic flow, not just with movement in the environment or as moving through space, but even with our our ocular motor activities, our saccades, our smooth pursuits, convergence. Um, And then it, it kind of progresses where we're getting more optic flow with the greater head or eye motion. So it's even more so with a VOR, VOR cancellation. So for the really visually hypersensitive person, we need to think about where we start them in a program where we're probably not starting with them walking through a crowd or doing um, viewing YouTube videos where there's a lot of visual stimulus. We might be starting with them doing very small saccades. And even that eye motion with that perceived movement in the background could be enough to stimulate them. So considering that grading of the optic flow is important in the progression for our patients. So great. So this is definitely a big topic if you start really looking at just everyday life that we have this optical flow that we have to be addressing um, for our um, clients. So would you be able to explain a little bit more of like maybe what um, sometimes I think of us as therapists um, or um, healthcare um, clinicians, we're like detectives, right? So they tell us that we're they don't have good balance or they feel dizzy or um but like what is actually provoking that? So is there, you know, I know talking about Costco or, you know, the grocery store, or like standing, you know, I worked in, lived in New York City, being able to stand at the subway station, seeing the train moving. Um, what other questions maybe would you ask your clients if um, you think that this might be an issue or maybe not even the questions, what would they be telling you that you would start delving deeper into this? Um, I... I typically ask, um, you know, how do you feel scrolling on your computer or on your phone? How do you feel when you are reading? Do you get dizzy while reading? Um, How do you feel um, in a crowded environment? Although that has changed with COVID um, in that we're going into less crowded environments or how are you at parties? Um, And then it can be very person specific. So for um, educators or for students, you know, how do you feel in the classroom when um, you have to look back and forth from your desk to the um, whatever's projected on the screen? How do you feel when um, there's a a fidgety person next to you and there's a lot of motion in your surround? Um, And so it can be very um, dependent on the person. It can be very dependent on their age, their occupation, um, and really trying to know the patient so that we can start picking kind of to what Catherine was saying, really pick what kind of ocular motility is, um, how sensitive are they is one thing. So, um, 
uh, that would be where I would start asking. Catherine, you have more questions? I think other comments that I'll hear from patients are at like their kids' sporting activities. So a soccer game, basketball, where there's just a lot of quick and unpredictable motion that that can be triggering for some patients. Um, but I think you covered a lot of what we hear, Jamie, from our, from our patients where you, that little um, light bulb moment of, okay, that's, we're dealing with some visual motion hypersensitivity and how do we incorporate optic flow for this individual? Catherine, you, it's funny you said that parties thinking back of um, when I worked at South Valley, I had a client that we were working on all this and he was doing so well. And the one thing that he said that still bothered him, he came back was at a birthday party, there was, everybody got a balloon and the balloons were bouncing up and down and moving with the wind. And he said, it drove him crazy. And he like realized that was like the last piece that we needed to help with um, some of his um, dizziness and balance. So um, birthday parties and that unpredictable um, movement was definitely um, his trigger. Um, so if you do have a client then that starts telling you some of these things and you know, you're like, oh, this might be something, what's your next steps of how you would you assess this to know, you know, what level to do for training for them? So I think we typically start looking at the ocular motor exam. So we'll start very small. How do they tolerate saccades and smooth pursuits, convergence? Um, and we can do that in different position, sitting, standing, and a really highly visually sensitive person, we might be lying down, so they get a ton of somatosensory input. Um, we can look at different backgrounds and the speed of motion and see how all of that impacts their symptoms and then keep progressing through, we had mentioned before, VOR, VR cancellation. How do they tolerate the in-clinic testing? Uh, and if they're doing really well with that, then we start thinking, okay, we need to keep pushing that a little bit more. How do we give them an even busier, more unpredictable environment? And um, for your listeners who caught the podcast with Kenda Fuller, they will know all about optokinetic therapy and the ways that we can challenge their visual system um, that way. I, I think um, what I would add to that is diving into questioning the patient. And I think we're, we're looking at two things when we're observing um, ocular motility with a patient. One, you know, is the movement accurate? But really, when you're diving into the sensitive patient, while it might be inaccurate, how do you feel? Does that make you dizzy? Does that make you nauseous? Are you, do the, you notice more sway in standing when you're doing a smooth pursuit um, or psychotic eye motion? So really qu questioning the patient's symptoms associated with the eye movement um, versus purely looking at the accuracy of motion, if that makes sense. Accuracy of motion for their ocular motor, like seeing. Yeah, yeah. So if you're doing a convergence exercise, a saccadic exercise, or a smooth pursuit exercise, how do you feel? What's the sensitivity? And to Catherine's point, if I change the background, so um, I think back to when I was in clinic and we were still using files, um, and we had the patient. <laughs> paperwork in a file, I would hold the, the, the file up and have the movement behind a really blank scene versus in clinic with my um, Venetian blinds and having more um, a, a more complex background that might overstimulate a patient. So the background really matters. The um, and, and really diving into what makes you more sensitive and what brings on those symptoms for you um, more so again, than looking at the accuracy of the eye movement. And I think that background is a really important point, uh, Jamie, because I know um, my wardrobe definitely changed when I worked a, a full vestibular clinic, you know, some of the busier shirts or plaid or like printed shirts, I would not be able to wear. And if I was doing an assessment with that type of shirt, that's going to be a different assessment or maybe have different outcomes if I had a plain, you know, black shirt on, for instance. Um, so I think we need to be really cognizant of if we're evaluating what is that background, because that can actually change um, our assessment. Mm -hmm. But also, I am curious, you know, I, I talked to Dr. Polliser about this, and I've been thinking a lot on this downward head position that a lot of our clients might have. So they're looking down maybe for their feet, but 
um, you know, if they could have actually good ocular motor and move their eyes, do they need that whole head position? Or is that also, could they be doing that because they don't want to have that optical flow if there is that busy, you know, what else kind of delving deeper into why is that person's head positioned that way? Because we know that's going to change balance with the postural control with just um, how your limits of stability is. Um, have you guys looked a little bit more or what's your thoughts on just head position of if you see somebody with that to start thinking of, you know, the reasons why they might be doing that? I think, again, it, it depends on you know, what the patient's describing. So uh, again, if we're thinking this is a person with a, a lot of visual motion hypersensitivity, it can be a, a strategy for them to try to reduce the optic flow in the periphery. The, the, problem is that we should be integrating that optic flow information to provide us um, a, a sense of how fast we're going, the direction we're moving in. And so by reducing that input, they can actually be causing some more sensory conflict because you're still getting some optic flow of seeing the ground move beneath you, but it may not be as accurate in terms of how fast they're going through space or the direction. Um, we hear patients all the time who say, oh my gosh, the carpet in the lobby of my assisted living facility drives me nuts because it's highly patterned or you know, walking into um, a lobby and then they're changing surfaces that having that downward gaze doesn't necessarily improve things for them because if it's, you know, they're changing surfaces quite a bit and that visual input keeps changing or it's very busy that while they're trying to seek less visual disruption and, and input, they're still getting it from the ground. And so that strategy doesn't work in all environments and all situations. Right. I think it, it might be a strategy of visual dependence so that that person is, um, A, they have a fear of tripping. Like a lot of people are so worried, especially outdoors and walking, if there's cracks or change in, um, change in surface, they, they want to know as soon as possible. <laughs> and so they keep this um, downward gaze onto the ground. And to, to actually, to Dr. Pollitzer's point, we actually get more um, peripheral vision if we fixate ahead. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a poor compensatory strategy. I don't, um, to, to what Catherine's saying. Yeah. And I think what you're both saying is important just to look at the big picture of the client, you know, so to be, you know, looking, why is somebody doing something and having different options to say, is it because they're trying to avoid, is it helping them to get more reference because they're, they can't, they over rely on their vision. Um, and to that point, would you be able to describe a little bit better for um, our audience the difference between visual dependence and visual motion hypersensitivity? Because sometimes um, people might think that they're sim they're similar, which they could be have some similarities, but they they are different. Um, and our your clients might um, have different presentations based on those. That's a great question, Erica. So visual motion hypersensitivity really is born out of being visually dependent. Um, so visual dependency is, you know, overweighting the visual system for our sense of orientation and balance. And it's common after a vestibular insult because we, our brain knows we can't rely on accurate information from our inner ear. So we naturally rely more on our vision. The, the trouble is, like Jamie had mentioned earlier, if it's a very busy background, we can't discern well if the movement in the environment is us or simply what's going on around us. Like we've all experienced you're parked or stopped at a light and the car next to you starts to move and we all press on the brake thinking that we're moving. There's that little lag of that, that integration of that visual input. And so when we're highly visually dependent, um, <clears throat> we run into situations where we become disoriented or more off balance because of the visually rich environment. So, a person who continues to over rely on their vision will then potentially become visually motion hypersensitive in which they start to feel dizzy and disoriented when there's that um, visual conflict of a lot of movement around them or a very patterned um, environment, lots of visual stimulus. 
And that's when they start to have not just um, some that moment of conflict of like, ooh, I feel a little off, but now a more continual uh, discomfort, disorientation, nausea with all of that visual. Um, anything to add to that, Jamie? Yeah, I think, um, again, it's more of a sensory waiting issue after we, um, after, in fact, there's, there's plenty of research now that shows us that really shortly after uh, vestibular neuritis, that the brain makes these adaptations to rely heavily on the visual system to help compensate. Um, <clears throat> and so the first thing that happens is that the patient will become um, very visually dependent for that reference of horizontal and vertical. So we use our, our visual field as a reference of stability, but we also use um we use the flow of motion or optic flow to tell us when we are moving. What happens when somebody becomes overly dependent on vision is that it becomes like Catherine was saying, this, this sensory conflict. I always tell my patients, your vision is really great until it's not a useful strategy, right? So it's great in a stable environment, but now you get either visual ambiguity, like I just don't know where I, I am in space with patterns and, and whatnot, like there's not a great visual reference um, versus actual motion that's moving around you that even gives you a perception of motion when it's moving. And that conflicts can cause nausea, dizziness, unsteadiness, um, all of those ill feelings that people get um, in a visually moving environment or a, a visually sensory, busy environment. And I think uh, it's empowering what you were saying to tell your clients, because sometimes they don't really know, hey, when I go in Costco, I don't feel right, you know, and what's going on? Like I felt fine walking around my house this morning. Now, all of a sudden I feel off balance and that could be scary if you don't understand what's the trigger. So as our mm -hmm. role to explain that to our clients, hey, that totally makes sense. Um, this is what our plan is to help you be able to navigate in that environment, I think is really important. And I, I found pretty empowering to some of my clients to finally understand what's going on um, because it just, you know, that would be a little concerning if all of a sudden you felt off balance and not know why, you know. Absolutely. Um, it's very threatening to the patient. And the more they understand and know it, I think it, it even takes away a percentage of the dizziness because they can kind of uh, then cognitive, cognitively override some of that um, while the rest kind of needs the rehab to get, to get through for sure. And so I think that they can, they can plan for it. They know, okay, I'm about to go into a situation where it's really stimulating. How do I, is there a time of day that I feel best? Are there things that I avoid doing leading up to having to go to Costco so I'm not already getting kind of stirred up? But that you're right, Erica, that education is so huge and empowering for the patient to understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling and to know that there are things that can be done to help. I think it just demystifies and it gives them control. And they can start to make choices based on the sensory conflict that they're about to get into. So based on that, let's go a little bit more than it kind of reminded me of the article um, that you provided, the Thompson article. Um, and I will have all the references for everybody um, in the notes. So you'll be able to um, have all these references. But making that um, so if you do anticipate right and know you're going to be in that environment, you know, the article talked about how, you know, people took shorter steps or wider um, base of support to improve their balance when they had this optical flow um, versus being able to take this like quick lateral step to catch yourself and then to be able to keep going. Um, so it made me think a little bit about these lateral step adjustments, both anticipatory and reactive. And how do we train that um, for our patients to be appropriate um, in the right environments? Um, can you kind of go a little bit more into how you train or, you know, I always even look at some of my clients, I'll say, you know, this is 
compensatory versus restorative. You know, this is what you're going to be doing in this environment until we get here. Um, and this is what we're working towards so that you don't even have to be doing that. Um, would you be able to delve a little bit more into kind of your training and how you get somebody to um, have these um, right reactions um, in these environments? Okay, I'll take this one. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think the first thing I think about is the air signal, and um, and that the the retraining requires some form of an error, and um, and I tell I I talk that through with my patients um, quite a bit that anything we're training needs some bit of error in order to improve or make change, or, you know, that's where neuroplasticity comes from. So then if the goal is to tolerate the motion, we want to really find the, the easiest sensory stimulus that creates an error um, kind of going back to what we talked about with Catherine um, about um, the different ocular um, motil- ocular motor activities that might provide that. So if on a sensitive, sensitivity level, we're talking about that, we want to grade that to their error signal, right? And to just giving them enough that they can tolerate, tolerate it and really have the autonomy in how far and how hard they're going to push. If the error is going to be postural control and imbalance, same thing. I want to to vary base of support so that I get the right error signal. You don't want to overdo it so that they're falling, but you want them to feel or have a perception of sway. Um, And again, over time, that that will adapt and change with the added stimulus that I'm giving them. So for example, this, what the adaptation the patient made was to widen their base of support. And I might say, well, let's try having a more narrow base of support um, and let's uh, play, play with that optic flow. And yes, that the error is okay. And the error is how you're going to change and adapt um, and trying to pull them out of that maladaptation or adjustment if I can. Catherine, do you have? I think that the everything you said was absolutely fantastic, Jamie. But also the, the the grading of if a person's having a lot of challenge with their reactive postural adjustments, maybe we train that separately and train the visual motion hypersensitivity with optic flow separately before we start thinking about layering them onto each other. And maybe we start with optic flow with something where we want them to be challenged but successful. So we might start with narrowing their base of support, like Jamie had mentioned, um, with optic flow. So do we add in some standing in Romberg or um, like semi-tandem stance while they're doing an ocular motor activity that provides the optic flow and is challenging their balance? And we just keep upping the ante on one or the other of the optic flow piece or the reactive postural adjustment and then keep working on integrating the two. Um, sometimes we, we jump to the highest challenge optic flow that mm-hmm. we have available to us without giving the patient the stepping stones or the building blocks to be successful um, and not completely overwhelmed. It's all about the grading. So whether you're grading the base of support or you're grading the um, the visual motion. Um, and I think this is really important of uh, what you were saying again, with the education of telling our clients of what that grading is. So um, let's go into the grading a little bit more on if you're grading, for instance, just, we, we talked about stance or even um, position on different surfaces could be another one, um, but grading of that optical flow. So giving some examples um, Catherine, you mentioned, you know, at Kenda's lecture with the um, OPK, but what are other ways that you can challenge um, if you're just doing optic flow right part? I think this speaks to um, one of one of the things that Catherine and I look at with patients is um, the difference between um, 
if we think about the two, so two different ways that we can test for convergence, we have one that's more of a smooth pursuit where you're kind of doing the pencil push-up that the patient is sort of following out and in. Or if we think about those drop beats where the person is finding a different fixation point, which is more of a saccadic motion. What you'll find is that people who are visually motion sensitive will be less sensitive with the Brock beads and that saccadic eye motion. It's much slower. There's less flow versus a smooth pursuit. And I think that's such a great example of how fast we move our eyes or if we psychotically move our eyes, that it's a much easier um it's, it's much easier in that graded exposure to do the saccadic eye motion compared to the smooth pursuit eye motion if we're just looking at convergence alone. I think it also goes to just that testing and trying to find how do you feel with that? Does that make you feel dizzy, off balance, unsteady? Um, you can have them grade it or, and tell you what their um, what their uh where they are on a zero to 10 scale, or you can just ask them which one was better. And more often they'll tell you that the psychotic one feels much better. And so initially in the program, like Catherine said, we want them to have success and understand what they're doing and give them even the autonomy of, okay, when this feels easier, I want you to try it this way and let's see what happens to your balance or that sense of motion that you're feeling. Um, and then it only, it, it only escalate, you know, we only change it from there. Like, here's the simplest. If you're okay, I can move to the next thing. If you're okay with this. I can move to the next thing. But the ultimate goal is that we want an error and that error could be dizziness, unsteadiness, um, even a little bit of nausea, um, th those are error signals. And telling them what the error signal we're looking for would also be what I would add to that. So one question on that, like just to give some examples a little bit more is, and I'm kind of thinking of a, a class I used to teach, uh, I taught, I still teach, but I'm thinking of this one class. Um, I had a student with me who was a yoga instructor before she was, became a PT um, student. And she didn't understand why I was walking. So I had 10 people with Parkinson's working on some balance and they were in a, a narrow base of support and she didn't understand why I was walking in front of them. <laughs> you know, so she wanted me, she's like, you're actually decreasing their balance by doing that walking because they can't stare at a point or they can't be able to focus on that. So just thinking of, would you almost have you know, I'm thinking of a class setting, um, but this could be having one person watching one person walk. So you have, if, are you having, is that almost like a smooth pursuits if you're kind of maintaining gaze on that person as they're walking versus the saccades might be um, find um, five squares in the room as quick as you can or something, I don't know, or, you know, find some colors or um, find your favorite picture in the room, um, you know, as you're having them jump to different targets along the room. Mm -hmm. um, uh, would you be able to give some other examples of, you know, how you can have them be moving that would be in our environment? Um, and then would you almost grade that for the example I gave having that person walk faster or having that person have a busy shirt? Like what are other things that you can do um, just to give our audience some um, examples of, you know, where they would start kind of. Absolutely. So on a, a person who's very visually motion hypersensitive, we start with, we want to, like Jamie said, the autonomy is huge. Control is huge. So we start very small and they choose, the distance of the targets. They choose how fast they're moving their eyes. So for saccades, we might do something like, um, let's take some pictures of family or friends or something that brings you joy that you find rewarding. And we're going to put them at a distance where your eyes are having to jump from one target to the next. So about six inches apart where your head isn't involved in the motion. 
right? So that would be the cause. And then to make it more challenging, we could start adding in multiple targets. Uh, we can have it on a, a background that's very busy. Things like blaze pods are awesome where they're unpredictable and lighting up and you're having to jump your eyes around very quickly. Um, progressing smooth pursuits, they could start by just following their finger, moving side to side, up, down, and a figure eight. And then Erica, like you were mentioning, it becomes more unpredictable when you're following a target that you're not in control of the speed. So you're watching a person walk back and forth. If the person's walking in a longer path where you're now having to turn your head to stay on target with them, then that changes from a smooth pursuit to VOR cancellation. Where there, that now gives you quite a bit more of optic flow. Um, so we can keep thinking about, like we would do for any other motor control or motor learning task of making it less predictable and more degrees of freedom um, to have to incorporate um, to scale those challenges. No, I think that is um, really rich information to be able to kind of see that grading part, because I think that's hard sometimes. We might... um, everyday life is actually pretty hard, you know, some of the situations we're in. So how do we back that up in the clinic and have that for our client to get um, slowly, um, as you said, to be successful and then um, slowly adapt to get them to be more progressive with those exercises. So I'm looking behind you, Erica, and you have your balance, your awesome balance mats behind you. And so um, you might just you have if you're having somebody walk towards that balance mat and you have a red and maybe a different color or a green, you could very well just have them look from one foot of your mat to the other foot of your mat. The mat itself has a lot of horizontal lines, which might create some um, visual sensitivity for the patient, but it might not. I mean, I think that's the thing is you're just constantly assessing and reassessing. How does that one feel? Does that one bother you? How do you feel when the background changes um, when or when it doesn't? And so you can have them use that fixation point. I think the the, the one thing that Catherine and, and actually from, from our training, we, we also want to avoid too much visual fixation because we know that leads to visual dependency as well. So I love the idea of saccades because it does sort of switch that visual fixation point a little bit more. And then you can progress to complex patterns. You know, if you really, really wanted a challenge with a perturbation, you could walk with them, but then you like jerk yourself over to the left or the right. And now you're really, you know, creating this perturbation of loss uh, of loss of visual uh, I guess it would be loss of visual fixation or um, with you moving um, so that could certainly be something that you um, would progress your patient you can have them toss a ball and follow the ball too and that would be a smooth pursuit eye motion but again you're it's just this constant assessment reassessment how did that feel how are you feeling can I move? Can I have you move your eyes and follow with a ball as we're tossing it back and forth? Or are they just fixating on the ground and still kind of catching the ball would be the difference. You know, something as simple as going on a walk in your neighborhood. We're, we perform about three saccades per second in daily life. So just walking and being out in your natural environment, assuming it, you know, if you're in a very busy New York City, that could be way overwhelming. So if you can pick an area where there's not a ton of visual input, but just walking and we might start the patient like you're going to walk two houses away or you you decide on any given day how far do you feel you can go and just moving through space. We're constantly moving our eyes and uh, performing saccades, performing smooth pursuits, and you have some unpredictability of maybe a car goes by or you hear a dog bark and you turn your head. Just doing daily movement provides us a lot of optic flow and ocular motor um, opportunities. And sometimes we can just start there. Plus, you know, walking has a million other benefits, but that can, can be a place to start with a patient where they don't feel like I have to do five to 10 of these exercises right now. They're just moving and, and, you know, being. 
Yeah. And I think that salience that you both talked about is so important to, you know, if you're tossing a ball, maybe you have a grandchild or a child that you, that's something that you do anyway. And then you're adding that exercise in it or looking at pictures in the clinic um, versus looking at an X, like you said, I think that's really important. Um, I had a client recently as a teacher and I was like, you can do so much in your classroom, you know? So she started to toss a ball to each kid to answer the question um, was like reading in her rocking chair. So she can do things throughout her day um, versus, you know, saying I have to go home and do these exercises. I think um, we have to get creative sometimes to see what um, is important and how do we grade that, you know, um, for each of our clients. So um, Mm -hmm. And Jamie, I think it's funny when you said the lines on the mat. Um, So Pat and I had a conversation a long time ago once. And of course, she started to sway it back and forth. (laughs) It was like playing around (laughs) different lines and trying to see like, how does that like integrate, you know, because is there a a difference? And I forget, she did say something um, for horizontal versus vertical. Like, would that make a difference? Um, Because right now, you know, my mind she wanted them to be vertical. So we switched them. And I actually even put it around someone this way with the vertical and had them go like almost like the balance. Um, uh, yeah. You know, to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, if you can go into, or if you know, it, cause you know, what's the difference for a client with those like horizontal blinds or vertical blinds, or like, does that make a difference on our flow? It does. Um, direction actually matters uh because if and if you look at both the thompson and um o'connor articles they are having um pardon me one looks purely at horizontal and the other one has like this ap flow and pardon me for not Catherine will interject and tell me which one was with (laughs) um But flow really matters because we use flow to understand the direction of motion. So if the lines on your mat are vertical and moving and you're moving sideways, you're going to get a horizontal flow. If you have your mat and you flip it um, vertical and you go up and down, you're going to have more of an AP, AP flow. And those actually correlate with horizontal canal of stimulation versus um, anterior-posterior canal stimulation of the vestibular system and getting conflict in either one of those directions. Um, and if I, – I won't go – so even if you just go side to side or add circular motion or even linear motion, if we think about – the autolith and how it detects that linear motion, you're, all of those actually matter because if you think about the vestibular system and its um, its structures and how it, it is actually fairly specific in motion as well, you're, you're correlating that. It, it could also, yeah, I won't go into the next topic. So one question on that, though, then do you grade or assess? Like I know for we've had conversations before on the disco ball or, you know, when we do OPK, I would change it for my clients with Parkinson's. I really did it caudal and had to go backwards and wanted to see what their balance strategy was when it was going that way versus um, I know there's some research on um, for stroke rehab for left neglect looking at in the horizontal going left or right. Um, does Do you grade also, I guess, the um, the direction also of it, or are you kind of looking at it more how we talked about grading? It would really depend on, on what is the patient telling us they need, right? If they're saying that they fall backwards a whole bunch, well, we need to look at that when we have a more vertical stimulus, how does that impact their balance? Are they getting a good uh, stepping strategy? Are they swaying? So what we'll see in a highly visually dependent person is they will start to sway in the direction of the optic flow, right? So if, if they're seeing a motion that's medial lateral, they will sway to the side or step to the side. So it was the Thompson article, Jamie, that was just purely medial lateral optic flow. In O'Connor, they had subjects walking on a treadmill or standing in normal stance or in um, tandem with medial lateral optic flow as well as AP to see how that impacted them. And 
and really it makes sense that in, in um, quiet standing with the AP flow, they would sway forward and back when they were standing um, in tandem where we would see more of a lateral ankle or hip strategy with the medial lateral flow, they would sway in the direction of the flow. So we just have to go back to what is our particular patient challenged with? Are they having a hard time if they are watching their grandchild's soccer game and they feel like they start to stagger? Well, let's look at what happens when we provide a horizontal flow for them. If they're saying that they feel like they um, are going to fall when they go down the stairs and it, we've determined it's really more of the visual piece and it's not just a depth perception issue, then do we look at a more vertical flow for them? Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's a, a good explanation to be able to kind of really be more specific sometimes to our clients. Um, or even I was even thinking, um, um, Jamie, what you were talking about, like scrolling, you know, down on the computer or on your phone or like swiping, you know, left to right, like what mm-hmm. kind of figuring out what is that trigger and then starting um, with one or the other, depending on what they need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely went through a lot of information um, today, and I think we can keep talking about, you know, so many different ways that we treat um, different ways that you assess that you can truly make a, a bigger difference in your clients. Is there any, I guess, last um, kind of points that you really um, or key points that you want um everyone to know, or if there's like a a treatment or something that we didn't really talk about that um, you wanted to discuss just to kind of end our interview today. I would say the biggest thing really is, is two big things, really listening to the patient to find out what are their specific challenges and triggers, and then tailoring their program to their specific needs and understanding the grading of their the exposure and their challenge. Um, I think that often we think, okay, they're visually emotion hypersensitive. I'm going to go to the most challenging YouTube video I can find, and we're missing the the smaller baby steps to being able to tolerate that. And if we just completely overwhelm them, we lose them, right? They they already came to us feeling lousy, and we've just like made that so much worse. So. We have to look at all the components that have caused them to be visually motion hypersensitive in the first place and figure out where where do we start them where they can be successful but challenged. And I lied. There's a third thing. The the education that you brought up, Erica, that helping them to understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling and to know that there are strategies they can use to reduce those symptoms and that through exercise and habituation, they can get better. I think that's, those are might be three take home. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the, the, the demystifying and then also the understanding of not let alone the graded exposure that Catherine's talking about. Um, but also letting them know um, that the errors are necessary into, in, in order to create that, good adaptation that we're looking for, or neural adaptation. And so um, telling them that uh, that the, the dizziness is an error, but this is something that will, will help you. It kind of goes back to um, Janine Holmberg has a, has a statement of what's dizzy will heal you. Um, and, and so we, it's okay to be dizzy. This is your, your brain's way of trying to make sense of the, um, the stimulus that's coming in, the sensory stimulus through your visual system, the um, sensory stimulus through your vestibular system. And we didn't tap into somatosensation either, Um, but giving them the the strategy to control it um, and to allow it to come through so that they can habituate and get through um, the program much easier, but really understanding that we can actually take it back a notch and sometimes giving them that success and making it easier for them to begin with will have better outcomes. They'll tolerate it so much better when we can give them control and education and understanding. 
And that direction matters. Um, Direction and speed all matters. And sometimes we just have to go back to keeping it really simple. I loved Catherine's point to walking. You know, walking outside, we get optic flow. We get movement. We get occasional perturbances of balance when the car goes by. Um, But that ultimately, the more natural we exercise we give them, um, the less sensory conflict it is as well. And then we can grade in that sensory conflict as we go. Thank you. I I think that grading, you know, all your points are um, really, really important. Um, It kind of reminded me of um, Bandura's the self-efficacy, you know, all the different aspects of it. You actually addressed each of it. It was like being able to give those expectations of like, this is what is normal. Um, You might feel some dizziness. Um, It reminds me of that one client with the bouncing balloons I talked about. He would actually, if we didn't get him dizzy in his session, he would be like concerned. He's like, come on, you got bring it on. You know, he wanted to get better because each time he saw what else can we do and understood that to say, okay, this was the next piece because now I'm not getting dizzy in all these environments. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, expectations of what um, what is the normal path of recovery and how do we address that and what environments, all of that, um, I agree, is something. Um, it's, it's different than the musculoskeletal system that we talk, you know, on just, we think of, you know, increasing weights or reps or things like that. It's the same aspect of how else do we dose some of the sensory pieces of that. Mm-hmm. Um, So I want to thank both of you guys. I'm definitely going to put all the, um, we'll put some notes and all the references. And then if there's questions, I feel like this can definitely be a follow-up because there's still so much more information or even um, some examples. Um, I'll put some videos up and things like that so people can kind of have a visual to it too. So thanks again for joining us today. Erica, thank you so much for having us. This has been really nice. Um, I appreciate it. And we'll have to do another one. Thank you, Erica. We could just talk for hours about all things balance um, and sensory weighting. And so, yes, thank you. This is a, a fantastic opportunity. Thanks again. All right. If you liked this episode, I hope you would consider subscribing to the Balance Matters podcast on our website and iTunes. Share it with your friends, colleagues, and show some love on social media. For a new podcasts like mine, those reviews are everything. To stay connected with us, follow Step and Connect on social media and visit our website, stepandconnect.com, to learn more about our educational courses, resources, and products. I hope you learned something today and will join me on this journey to make sense of balance.